Thank you guys very much for your worship. It's fun to be able to honor God and worship Him, and thank you for being here in this place today. I'm going to be sitting down today um, because for the last two days I've helped my son and daughter-in-law move from Kansas City to here, and I'm admitting it, I'm an old man. I am exhausted and I am tired, so I'm going to sit down like the rest of you get to sit down. So in two weeks, we have our fall festival. Uh, we'll talk more about that at the end of the service, but I just want to encourage you. It's going to be a special day, so don't miss that on October the 27th. And then the other thing is, I am just so very thankful for our small group leaders. We have several men and women who lead our small groups. We have, I think it was 143 names of people, adults, who are part of one of our small groups through the week. Um, studying God's Word, connecting together, and I just wanted to be able to say thank you to each one of you who lead those groups who um, serve in that particular capacity, so thank you. So uh, this first question is pretty easy. Um, who was the individual who coined the phrase, won't you be my neighbor? Who was that? Mr. Rogers, that's right. You guys are way more awake than first service. Mr. Rogers in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, right? I mean, he would come in, and he would put his sweater on, he'd put his sneakers on, and he would lead this whole time of just helping children learn more and more about what it was like to be a part of the world, um, to be a good neighbor. How many of you uh, grew up watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? Any of you? All right, there you go. Um, it was just a part of life, right? He just walked into the, na uh, to the living room, he invited us into the living room. It was like he had this idea that as teaching children about being a neighbor, he recognized that eventually those children would grow up, and he wanted them to learn to be a neighbor even as they're adults. And we think to ourselves at times, well, that's a very sweet sentiment, right? But uh, that just doesn't work all that well in the real world. I have to be a little bit more selective with the neighbors that I let into my life, right? Because you just can't be too careful. Now, that is a sentiment that many people in our world and our culture have. You got to be selective with the neighbors that you have. You can't be too careful. But it's not only a, a concept and an attitude that our culture has, but sadly, it is a concept and attitude that many followers of Jesus have. So today is going to be really a challenge to us because if you have that kind of a perceptive, perception. You can't be too careful about other people, right? Then that is a perception that is contrary to what Jesus teaches us in his word. So this series that we're in, this journey of mercy, as we're trying to get closer and closer to the kind of church God wants us to become, really started, God started working in my heart in uh, about four years ago when the riots began in Ferguson. Um, if you've been a part of the St. Louis area, or even if not, I mean, that's been a part of something that we've heard about. And it was an uncomfortable thing for me like it was for many of you because that's just so contrary to the experiences that I had growing up in my life. And what was a struggle for many of us was the fear that came about, right? Because we had this fear of things that we didn't know and we didn't understand. It was like, why would you tear up the neighborhood that you live in? Why would they, you know, do these kinds of things? And so it caused this fear to stir up within many of us. And I understand that and I get that. But as I observed the reactions and the responses, not of our community, but of our church community, of our church family, of Wildwood Christian Church, I mean, it, it bothered me some because rather than having the immediate response from many of us 
that said, well, how can we show mercy to, to people who are obviously hurting in need? The response was much more about how do we protect what's ours? I mean, I literally heard conversations from people, a part of this church, talking about how they can better protect their own property. You know, need to go get a gun. We need to be able to make sure that those people don't do that where we happen to live here. And it really started bothering me. Part of it is because some of that was, you know, kind of my mentality as well. What should my response be in the midst of that? And so today on this journey of mercy, we come face to face with what I think is the most challenging part of the journey of mercy. How do I show mercy to my neighbors, to my community? Specifically, if those are people that are very different from me. So this series is a journey, and I recognize that all of us start at different places in this journey, right? Because of your background or your personal experiences, because of how you were taught, how you were raised. Um, we all start this journey towards mercy at different places, but God's goal is not to get us all you know, to perfection here, but is to move each one of us as different parts of God's church just one step further in becoming more of the merciful church that as God says, he delights to show us mercy. He wants us to show that kind of mercy. Now, here's the definition that we've been using of mercy. Mercy is undeserved forgiveness, unearned kindness. Undeserved forgiveness. So the first part is, you've done something to hurt me. You've done something that's confusing to me. And so forgiveness, you, do, you don't deserve it. But I make the choice to cancel that debt, right? That's a call that God has on all of us as believers. But it's another step more than that. It's not just saying, you don't owe me anything. It's taking a step of showing unearned kindness to that person. That's the idea and the concept of what mercy happens to be. So today, we come to what I think is the most difficult part of this journey. And that is, how do we show mercy to others around us? our community, people who don't love Jesus Christ, people who oftentimes live a life contrary to what is taught in God's word. How do we show mercy to those kind of people? And so here's, here's kind of where we're going today, that mercy is worthless unless we extend it to the bruised, the broken, to the outcast, and to the shunned. Now today, I can guarantee you, and you probably already have, there are going to be times where you're going to feel somewhat uncomfortable. And my prayer is, is that in your uncomfortableness, which you know I've felt several times over the last few years, that I will always go back to, God, what is it that I need to learn out of this today? What, what do you want to do in my heart and my life? So when the opportunity to show mercy is presented in front of us, the question is, will I show it? Will you show it? I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to be at today. The page number uh, in the Bibles that are in the seat on, right in front of you at your feet there is listed in your program. So you can take your program out and find that page number and you can follow along there. But I, I want to begin with four kind of academic questions that we're going to come back to at the end. So I want you to think through your answers or your responses to this. The first question is this. What does God require of people and their relationship to him? Okay, so what is God, as, he's, as we picture him up in heaven, looking down on earth, what does God require of people in our relationship with him? Well, most of us would probably say, well, he wants us to love him, right? And we would quote, you know, the Old Testament verse, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And so we would say God wants us to love him. 
But love is a little hard to prove. You can say you love God, but it's really a very personal, intimate thing between you and God. It's not like it's going to really show up on the outside. So the second question changes a little bit, and it is this. What does God require of people in, relation, in regard to their relationship to one another? So the first one is us to God. This time, it's now us to each other and people around us. Well, this one's a little bit more difficult to deal with, right? Because for most of us, as we think about our relationship with our neighbor, we say, well, what God probably wants is the rest of that verse, you know, the first part, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second part is love your neighbor as yourself. And so God wants us to love him, and he wants us to love each other. So now let's make it a little more personal. And the fourth, third question is this, do you love God? So do you love God? And you say, well, sure, I love God, right? But again, as I mentioned a moment ago, that's a kind of deeply personal kind of thing. It's hard to prove that. And so then we go to the fourth question is, well, do you love your neighbor? And that one gets a little more uncomfortable because for most of us, when we say, do you love my neighbor? We would say, well, Doug, that kind of depends on how you define a neighbor, right? Are you talking about the folks that live out here in West County? People who live in Eureka, Wildwood, Ellisville, the, the people that live out in West County, is that who you're talking about? You know, is that your definition of neighbor? Or maybe your definition of neighbor is everybody who lives in the city of St. Louis. Or maybe it's everybody who lives in the state of Missouri. Maybe it's everybody who lives in the United States. You may say, Doug, I'm, I'm not sure really how to answer this question until you help me understand exactly who my neighbor is. And this was a very similar conversation that you find in the pages of Scripture. One day, this lawyer, or an expert in the law, in other words, he knew God's law, came to Jesus, and he had a conversation with Jesus that sounded similar to what we just had. He had a question for Jesus, but he wasn't really sincere in his question. He was really trying to make Jesus look bad and make him look good is what he was up. In fact, I think he had the whole conversation already mapped out in his mind. He had written it down. So I'm going to ask Jesus this question, and he'll answer it this way, and so I'll say it this way, and he'll answer it this way. And, you know, before he knows it, I will have Jesus in some kind of intellectual checkmate, and I'll look like this really cool guy. And so he begins with the question that is on the hearts and minds, I think, of a lot of people. But here's Luke chapter 10 and verse 25 and it says this, on one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to chest Jesus' teacher. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I admire Jesus because he restrains himself. He doesn't say, well, that's a stupid question. The nature of an inheritance is that you don't do anything to deserve it or earn it. It, it happens because somebody dies and they give you this gift. But Jesus didn't say that to the guy. What does Jesus say there? Verse 26, Jesus asked him, what is written in the law? And he said, how do you read it? Now, I think that this guy was really discouraged that this is how Jesus answered the question, because this was not the right answer. 
What Jesus did was he asked him a question back in turn. This guy was hoping for a theological discussion, and Jesus was treating him like a first grader because every Jew knew the answer to this, you know, what's written in the law, how do you read it? If you were a Jew, you knew that. This guy was an expert in that law, and so I think he was a little disappointed in how Jesus responds there, but he answers the question, verse 27. How do you read it? What's written in the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I think the lawyer recognized that he had sprung his own trap. You know, it's like the teacher asks you to write questions for the next test, but when the test comes, you forget all the answers to those questions you've just written down. I think that's what happened to this particular guy. I don't think he had any problem with the first part of it. Everybody knew he was religious because he knew how to show it on the outside. I love God, right? I can demonstrate that. But it was the second part of it that got under his skin. And so, verse 29, what's it say there? He says, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? He wanted a definition. I'll answer that question when you tell me who my neighbor happens to be. And I think we can empathize with that. Because there are times where, at least for me, I'm reading Scripture and I come across a very clear requirement of Scripture, but instead of obeying it, I want to discuss it. I want to say, well, does it really mean that today? Maybe it doesn't, you know, maybe... Maybe the culture was different then, so it doesn't really apply to me today. And if we talk about it long enough, maybe we can bend the scripture to fit our lives rather than bending our lives to fit scripture. I think it's kind of in that spirit that the lawyer asked this question, so who is my neighbor? So Jesus doesn't get into a theological discussion with him. He doesn't discuss what the Greek word for the he, or the Greek word means for neighbor. Jesus just tells him a story. But Jesus' stories always have a booby trap in them. I don't know if you have ever noticed that. It's like you start reading along and all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, that doesn't seem quite fair, right? So he just tells him a story, and it's a story that most people are familiar with. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. So Follow along on your Bibles as I read this out loud. Jesus said this, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan... As he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you have. So from the story then, Jesus gets the answer to the question, and who is my neighbor? And what Jesus does is he takes the man out of this world of theory and theology and he brings him into the real world. And in that world, he helps the guy discover the answer to the question, and who is my neighbor? And if we're going to answer it, then what it means is we've got to have the right viewpoint. We've got to see from the right point of view. And so what viewpoint do we take? 
As you listen to that story or read that story, what's your viewpoint there? It was the German theologian Helmut Thiekel who said that in studying these stories of Jesus, the viewpoint is everything. And so he illustrates what he meant by telling about a time when his son was probably, a, I don't know, six months, eight months, years of age, and he takes his son and he kind of lifts him up in front of a mirror. There's a mirror there, and his son looks at that mirror, and his son starts moving, and his reflection starts moving. And then the son waves at it, and suddenly the reflection is waving there, and suddenly the, fa- the kid's face lights up because he realizes, that's me. I do that all the time when it comes to Scripture. I'm reading these black or red words on this white page, and suddenly the words disappear, and it's like I'm looking at this mirror in which God's speaking right into my heart. And sometimes that's not all that much fun, but he speaks right into our life. And on the pages of Scripture, we can see a reflection of ourselves. And that's exactly what Jesus does to that man and hopefully to you and me. And so the question, who is my neighbor, really is a question about what viewpoint do I take in this story? Now, of course, one viewpoint could be the guy who's mugged, laying, bleeding, dying in the middle of the road right there. And if you came up to him and you were to say, excuse me, sir, we're, we're taking a survey at church. My pastor said I needed to ask you the question, who is, who's your neighbor? How do you think that guy in the road would answer that question, who is my neighbor? He would probably say, anybody who comes along and sees me and is willing to help me, that's the person I would say is my neighbor. Doesn't matter what they look like, what they do, if they're willing to help me at that particular moment, that person is my neighbor. And we get that, don't we? I mean, if you're driving down the road and your car breaks down and you open up the hood, pretending like you know something about your car, which I don't know anything at all, your neighbor is anyone who will stop, who knows something about vehicles who can help you get your car started, right? But then what happens if we're the one driving down the road and our car's working okay, we see that poor soul over there and their car's broken down and What's our definition of neighbor? Then it kind of changes to, I hope somebody comes along who can really help him, right? Who really knows something about vehicles. And so it's a hard thing to think about our perspective. Of course, the two people who take center stage are the priest and the Levite. And if you would write a list of people who would qualify as a neighbor, those two guys would be at the very top of that list. Because tradition says that the priest and the Levite, any of the religious leaders of the Old Testament, Tradition says that they got up every morning and they would, quote, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So who would best qualify as a neighbor? Somebody who knew that particular verse, right? But what does Jesus say they did in the story? He said the two guys that qualified the most, they just passed on by. And you say, who would possibly do that? I mean, nobody from West County would do something like that. We would help them out, right? We would stop. We would lend a hand. We would would really help these kind of people out. Maybe maybe that would, those people who wouldn't stop would be those people who live in Ferguson, right? Or maybe who live over in East St. Louis. Somebody else, but not good folk like us who live out in West County. And if you're thinking that, you're still outside of the story. You don't have the right viewpoint. So what viewpoint will we take? So there's three main characters, right? So the first one is the priest. Which viewpoint? So you might take the viewpoint of the priest. And since the priest was a religious type, I think his reasons for just walking on by were probably religious in nature. 
So he's probably thinking to himself, I don't want to defile myself. So an Old Testament law says that if you touch a dead body, then you have to go through this ceremony to find yourself cleansed. And so this priest, he's probably thinking, it'd just be my luck. If I stopped to help this guy, he would probably die in my arms. And then I'd have to go through this big ceremony, and it'd be so expensive for me to have to go through. And, and then it would be like, people would say, what? what did you do that you had to go through such a big ceremony to get cleansed from your sins, right? And so he says, I got my reputation to consider. Now, I don't know if he thought that way, but I think sometimes we think that way. So I grew up in, in um, kind of a church environment of what would call the doctrine of separation, that we were called to live a holy life, and so living a holy life meant that there were certain people and certain places and certain things you don't do, because if you do those things, then you're not holy, right? And you stay away from all those kinds of people. And in the name of holiness, we withdraw from people on the Jericho Road who really need our help. So there's the priest. The Levite is another perspective. He's another religious type. But to understand the role of the Levite, it'd be like, so if the priest is the senior pastor, then the Levite's like the children's minister, right? And so they have to do all the, you know stuff nobody else wants to do, and they have to take care of the kids and change the diapers, and they take care of the scroll. So what would, the, what would be the reason why the Levite would have just passed by? Well, I'm, I was thinking to myself, maybe he's on his way to Jerusalem and he's speaking at a youth conference, right? And he's got hundreds of kids who are going to be listening to him. And he's thinking to himself, this is a great sermon illustration. You know, I'm going to be talking to them about what it's to be a neighbor. And I can talk to them about this guy and how he was hurting and they can then help form the Jericho Road ministry, and they can come, and they can take care of people like that, right? I don't know if he was thinking that way, but I think sometimes we struggle with that. You know, we talk about, you know, we need to do more as a church and have more ministry to, so that we can be able to help support and encourage one another, and we need to help and support one, encourage one another. But in our endeavor to do more and more, it causes us to kind of ignore the people outside of our church who really need us because we're spending all of our time doing stuff together as a church. I think sometimes one of the best choices a church can make is to do less and the things that we do have them have a greater impact on what we do. But what happens to us at times is that we're so busy doing church that we don't have time to walk across the road to this particular guy and help him. So the third character, the third viewpoint of the story is that of the Samaritan. If you were to list all of the candidates who would be willing to help, the Samaritan would be like in negative territory down here, right? Because Jews, the guy who's laying there hurt and beat up, Jews and Samaritans, they hated each other. They despised each other. That Jew would have called that Samaritan a dog. That was the kind of term. It was like the lowest of terms that he would ever have used there. And I think sometimes we understand that kind of, I don't know, hatred or prejudice against other people. I mean, we use phrases like those people to describe those that we don't really understand. We hear terms like liberal and conservative, gay, homophobic. What, what did the Samaritan think? 
He just saw a guy in need. He gets down off his donkey. He goes down in the dirt, and he helps him. He cares for his wounds. Then what's he do? He puts him back up on the donkey, and he takes him to an inn, and he pays money to help the guy be taken care of. And he says, look, when I come back, I will make sure that I pay you for any kind of things that you're put out in taking care of this guy. And the very person the Jews wouldn't have ever helped, and thus they think to themselves, well, he will never, ever help me are the very people to display mercy and kindness. Maybe by telling this story, Jesus wants us to learn something from those who are on the other side. This weekend, I went to Dallas uh, for the Cowboys game. So Portia and I were invited by Charlotte Jones. She's the daughter of Jerry Jones, who owns the Dallas Cowboys. And uh, we went because we wanted to keep up with the Joneses. When we were invited, uh, I was, you know, I was aware that it, I was going to be surrounded with people from very different views and beliefs. And I'm not talking about politics. I was rooting for the Packers, and uh, get this, everybody in the Cowboys suite was rooting for the Cowboys. And so I had to hide my cheese hat in Porsche's purse. But during the game, they showed a shot of George and me laughing together, and uh, so... <laughs> People were upset. They thought, why is a gay Hollywood liberal sitting next to a conservative Republican president? Didn't even notice I'm holding the brand new iPhone 11. And, um, <laughs> but a lot of people were mad, and they did what people do when they're mad. They tweet. And, uh, but here's one tweet that I loved. This uh, person says, Ellen and George Bush together makes me have faith in America again. And, um, exactly. Here's the thing. I'm friends with George Bush. In fact, I'm friends with a lot of people who don't share the same beliefs that I have. We're all different, and I think that we've forgotten that that's okay that we're all different. For instance, I wish people wouldn't wear fur. I don't like it, but, but I'm friends with people who wear fur. And I, I'm friends with people who are furry, as a matter of fact. I have <laughs> friends who should tweeze more. And I, I have... But just because I don't agree with someone on everything doesn't mean that I'm not going to be friends with them. When I say be kind to one another, I don't mean only the people that think the same way that you do. I mean be kind to everyone. Doesn't matter. So is it possible that Jesus tells a story like this so we'll learn something from the other side? Well, he concludes the story with it, which is a very irritating and annoying question. He says, verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. I mean, I love it. The expert in the law couldn't even say the word Samaritan. He just said, the one who had mercy on him. It's, he, Jesus nails the point to us that mercy moves us to meet the need of the one that's right in front of us. So we go back to the question, who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? My neighbor is anyone whose need you see and whose need you're in a position to meet. That's your neighbor. That's the story here. And your neighbor may be somebody who's unknown. I mean, there's no way that these two guys would have known each other. Your neighbor may be somebody who's unknown. It may be somebody who's unfriendly. I mean, the Jews and the Samaritans, they had a deep and long-standing animosity for one another for various reasons. And you may find your neighbor to be somebody who rubs you raw, who annoys you, who slams the door in your face, who you can't even stand. Your neighbor may be unlovely. 
There's nothing attractive about a man lying in a dirt road, bloody and all beaten up, and yet the guy came down there and he helped him. And you may have a neighbor whose lifestyle you don't approve, whose hairstyle you don't like, and you think, why would anybody wear their hair like that? And whose whole way of operating turns your thermostat upside down. Your neighbor may be unrewarding. There's no evidence in this story that this Jew ever paid the Samaritan back. You may never be paid back for the mercy or the kindness that you show to other people. But Jesus is saying that your neighbor is anyone that God has put in front of you that has a need and you have the opportunity to meet that need. I mean, buried in that story is some indication of what it might take to be a neighbor. Uh, You know, a willingness to be involved, a willingness to lend a hand, a willingness to give time or give money. I mean, that's what the Samaritan did. He gave money, he gave time, he got involved. But there's a really important hook that Jesus gives us in this story, and it's in that word, see. Anyone whose need you see. All three of these men saw a stranger who had been mugged, but in a sense, they didn't see the same thing at all. The priest may have seen a ceremonial defilement. You know, the Levite may have seen a sermon illustration, but it was only the Samaritan who saw a neighbor. So back to those four academic questions that I asked at the beginning, you know, God's requirement of us and our relationship to him God's requirement or expectation in regard to our relationship with one another do you love God do I love my neighbor so I used this verse last week and it's very appropriate this week first John 4 20 John writes this whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar for whoever does not love their brother and sister who they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And here's that same verse in the message. If anyone boasts, I love God, and goes right on hating his brother or sister, thinking nothing of it, he's a liar. If we won't love the person, if he won't love the person he can see, how can he love the God he can't see? The command we have from Christ is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You've got to love both. You've got to love both. So I came across this quote this week which says this, Christian love does not reside in the personality being loved. It resides in the person doing the loving. See, God's command to love has nothing to do with that other person. So who is God putting in your vision? Maybe it's somebody in your family, a neighbor, somebody across the street. Maybe it's somebody you work with in a different cubicle. Maybe it's somebody that's in your fifth hour or maybe it's, Somebody that you haven't seen for a while. Maybe it's somebody in our city, in our state. I I don't know. But will I be the person who shows mercy? Will I recognize that that is a neighbor because they have a need and I have the opportunity to meet that? So what would it look like for this church to show mercy to the bruised and broken? I, I don't know. I mean, I I think that that's really dependent upon each and every one of us. I know that over the next few weeks and months and years, there'll be 
multiple Fergusons, some big, some small, that will challenge every single one of us to consider, you know, am I really willing to show mercy to people as God has asked me to do? But the opportunities will arise, and my prayer is that together we will take a step back. And even in the face of the fear or the unknown or the confusion that we see in the midst of it, that we will step back and we will say, God, help me to have the right viewpoint of this circumstance, of this person. Help me to see them as you would want me to see them. Help me to react as the Samaritan, somebody who's on the other side, showing love and compassion that you want me to show.